This is part one of a three-part series on Buddhism. In this episode, my plan is to set out the scene in the era right before the advent of Buddhism. But before I do that, let's discuss location. If you can't get to a map right now, imagine the world atlas. Find your way to India. Find Nepal. Nepal is a country sandwiched between India and China in the Himalayan mountain range. Look at Nepal and then look south at the northern Indian states bordering Nepal. You'll find two to three and two here are key. One, Bihar and the other, Uttar Pradesh. These are the lands of the Buddha. Buddhism is fundamentally an Indian philosophy that originated in Bihar, that in those days was part of the ancient Magadh region, centered on the city of Patliputra, now modern-day Patna in Bihar. Magadh, of course, was a region, and one of the 16 Mahajanpats, the great kingdoms. Magadh itself was ruled by multiple dynasties, including the Pratyoda, the Pratya, the Harangya, and the Shunkunka dynasties. Magadh played a significant role in the development of Jainism and Buddhism. It was succeeded by three of India's greatest empires, the Nanda Empire, that was around 345 to 322 BCE, Mauryan Empire, and then the Gupta Empire that came after the Nanda Empire. The Pala Empire also ruled over Magadh and maintained a royal camp in Patliputra. But before Buddhism, this region was already a flush with philosophical thought and ideas. The primary philosophy was what many today consider Hinduism, but we should really consider as Vedic beliefs. Hinduism or Vedic beliefs or Vedic Taiva or Taiva or whatever you want to refer to these theological or philosophical ideas, is and was always a bunch of thoughts, ideas that got itself mixed up later with God worship, creating what we know today as Hinduism. Keep in mind that Hinduism is, today, continuously running belief that pre-existed Buddhism. Indeed, Evidence of Hindu deity worship is found in the Indus Valley Civilization ruins that is as old as 3,300 BC. That's over 5,000 years ago from today. So what was Hindu philosophy before the Buddha and at the time of the Buddha? Well, the historical Vedic religions constituted the religious ideas and practices among some of what was known as the Indo-Aryan peoples of northwestern India, that would be modern Punjab and the areas around the western Ganges Plain. The whole Indo-Aryan stuff is highly debated and contested, and that contest and that debate is not necessary for now. The Sanskrit word Veda means knowledge or wisdom. It is derived from the root vid, i.e. to know. The Vedic period is the period in the late Bronze Age and early Iron Age 
in the history of India when the Vedic Hindu literature, including the Vedas, was composed. This would be around 1300 to about 900 BCE in northern India, between the end of the urbanized Indus Valley civilization and a second urbanization which began in the central Ganges plain around 600 BCE. The Vedas are a large body of religious texts composed in Vedic Sanskrit. The texts constitute the oldest layer of Sanskrit literature and the oldest scriptures of Hinduism. There are four Vedas. Those four are the Rig Veda, the Yurva Veda, the Samaveda, and the Arthaveda. Each Veda has subdivisions of its own. That includes things like mantras, ceremonies, sacrifices, commentaries on the rituals, and what is known as the Upanishads, i.e. text discussing meditation, philosophy, and spiritual knowledge. Vedas are sruti, i.e. what is heard, distinguishing them from other texts, which are called simriti, i.e. what is remembered. Hindus consider Vedas to be what is not of a man or a superhuman and impersonal or authorless. These, they consider, are revelations of sacred sounds and texts heard by ancient sages after intense meditation and possibly, or should I say, likely, with the help of substances. The various Indian philosophies and Hindu denominations have taken differing positions on the Vedas. Schools of Indian philosophy, which acknowledge the primal authority of the Vedas, are classified as orthodox schools. The Vedic period saw the emergence of a hierarchy of social classes that would remain influential for years to come. Vedic beliefs, not religion, developed into Brahminical orthodoxy and around the beginning of the common era, the Vedic tradition formed one of the main constituents of what became known as Hindu synthesis. Now I need to explain here that Hindu or Vedic or Brahminical orthodoxy, these are terms that are not religions, but philosophical beliefs. How I personally define religion is that the believers believe that their doctrine is the only doctrine, just one doctrine and not others. Thus, in my view, only Judaism and its subsidiaries, i.e. Christianity and Islam, maybe possibly Zoroastrianism, are the only religions that fall under my definition. Accounts of military conflicts in between various Vedic tribes are also described in the Rig Veda. Most notable of these conflicts was the Battle of Ten Kings that took place on the banks of the river Ravi. The battle was fought between the tribe Parthas, led by their chief Sudhas, against a confederation of ten tribes. The Parthas lived around the upper regions of the river Saraswati, while the Purus, their western neighbors, lived along the lower regions of the Saraswati. The other tribes dwelt northwest of the Parthas in the region of modern Punjab. After the 12th century BCE, as the Rig Veda had taken its final form, 
transition from semi-nomadic life to settled agriculture in northwestern India. Possession of horses remained an important priority of Vedic leaders and a remnant of nomadic lifestyles. The Gangetic plains had remained out of bounds to the Vedic tribes because of thick forest. After about 1000 BCE, the use of iron axes and plows became widespread and the jungles could be cleared with ease. This enabled Vedic tribes to extend their settlements into the western area of the Ganga Yanmaya, a region. The Upanishads are late Vedic Sanskrit texts of Hindu philosophy. They are the most recent part of the Vedas. The Upanishads document a wide variety of rites, incarnations, and esoteric knowledge. Departing from Vedic ritualism, the Upanishads alone are widely known and their diverse ideas interpreted in various ways that later informed Hindu traditions. The Upanishads are commonly referred to as Vedanta. Vedanta has been interpreted as the last chapters and part of the Vedas. Alternatively, you could call it the object, the highest purpose of the Veda. The concepts of Brahman, i.e. ultimate reality, and Atman, soul or the self, are central ideas in all of the Upanishads. Vedic belief was further developed with the emergence of the Kuru kingdom, systemizing its religious literature and developing the Satura ritual. It is associated with the painted grey ware culture around 1200 to 600 BCE that, by the way, did not expand east of the Ganga Yamuna river system. There were four main estates in the Vedic period. The Brahmic priests and the warrior nobility stood on top. Free peasants and traders were third. And slaves, laborers and artisans, many belonging to the indigenous peoples, were the fourth. At the time, this was not considered a caste system, but was a class system that became a caste system. There were people who were also outside the system. The Kuru kingdom, i.e. the earliest of the Vedic states, was formed by a super tribe which joined several tribes into a new unit. To govern this state, Vedic hymns were collected and transcribed and the new rituals were developed, which formed the now orthodox Satura rituals. Satura is a Sanskrit word that means belonging to Shruti, that is, anything based on the Vedas. Two key figures in this process of the development of the Kuru state were the king, Prakshit, and his successor, Jamania, transforming this realm into the dominant political and cultural power in northern Iron Age India. The most well-known of these religious sacrifices that arose in this period was the horse sacrifice. This sacrifice involved setting a horse free to roam the kingdoms for a year. The horse was followed by a chosen band of warriors. The kingdom and chiefdoms in which the horse wandered had to technically pay homage or prepare to battle with the king to whom the horse belonged. This sacrifice put considerable pressure on interstate relations in the area, as one can imagine. The Kuru kingdom declined after its defeat by non-Vedic Salva tribes, and the political centre of Vedic culture shifted east, into the Panchala kingdoms on the Ganges under King Dhyapla, approximately, I would say, 900 to 750 BCE. 
Later on, in the 8th or 7th century BCE, the kingdom of Vidya emerged as a political center further to the east in what is today northern Bihar and southeastern Nepal, reaching its prominence under the king Janka, whose court provided patronage for Brahmin sage and philosophers. By the 6th century BCE, the political units consolidated into large kingdoms called Mahajan Buddhas, or Great Kingdoms. Anda, a small kingdom to the east of Magad on the doorstep of modern West Bengal, formed the eastern boundary of Vedic culture. Yadavs expanded towards the south and settled in Mathura. To the south of their kingdom was Vasta, which was governed from its capital, Kamsabui. The Nadwaldar River and parts of northwestern Deccan form the southern limits. The end of the Vedic period is marked by linguistic, cultural, and political changes. The grammar of Panini marked the final apex in the codification of sutra texts and at the same time the beginning of classical Sanskrit. The invasion of Darius I of Persia into the Indus Valley in the 6th century BCE marks the beginning of outside influence that continued in the kingdoms of the Indo-Greeks. Meanwhile, in the Koshla Madhat region, the movements including Jainism and Buddhism started and objected to the self-imposed authority and orthodoxy of the intruding Brahmins and their Vedic scriptures and rituals. Okay, a critical point. Like I said before, and I repeat, religion is not on display here, but philosophy. So when someone produces a new idea like Buddhism, it was just another new idea in amongst many ideas, some new, others not so new. The concepts, the new concepts, were not and could not be heretical belief systems. They could coexist. Also note that not all of Bihar or India or Northern India was Vedic. Like today, it was not. Then, in those days, we had numerous tribes and an unlimited number of belief systems. We do today. All coexisting because they could, just as they can today. It is often debated if Magad, i.e. modern Bihar, was fully Vedic. I'd argue that of course no one knows, since of course none of us were there and it's lost to time. But what modern Bihar and modern India can tell us, reasonably correctly, we can assume that coexistence was highly likely. I've mentioned Jainism already. Jainism is one of the world's oldest continuously practiced so-called religions, I would say belief systems or dharmas. We need to look carefully at this dharma because it preceded Buddhism by a long way. Jainism is traditionally known as Jain dharma. It is an ancient Indian religion. Dharma, by the way, is an important concept with multiple meanings in Indian belief systems, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, as well as others. Although there is no direct single word translation for dharma into English, my take is that dharma means righteous duty or duty with spiritual meaning. Jainism was a belief that coexisted with the Vedic dharmas. The three main pillars of Jainism are ahishma, i.e. non-violence, non-absolutism, and non-attachment. Jainism traced its spiritual ideas and history through its succession of 24 leaders, or 
Tenkaras, with the first in the current type cycle being Rishabhaveda, who the tradition holds to have lived millions of years ago. The 23rd Trikantra Parshavantra, who historians date to about the 9th century BCE, and then the 24th and most recent Trikantra Mahavira, around 600 BCE. Jainism is an eternal dharma with the Trikantras guiding every time cycle of the cosmology. One of the main features of Jain philosophy is its dualistic metaphysics, which holds that there are two distinct categories of existence, the living, conscious, or the sentient being, i.e. the jiva, and the non-living or material, a jiva. Jain texts discuss numerous philosophical topics such as epistemology, metaphysics, ethics, cosmology, and soriatology. Now keep in mind, we are thousands of years ahead before, i.e., the European Enlightenment Movement. See my previous episode, episode 53, for the European Enlightenment Movement. So, in layman's terms, the philosophy is around the study of knowledge, morality, astronomy, and salvation. And it was being discussed thousands of years before it was being discussed by European Enlightenment thinkers. Many historians trace the development of Jain thought to one key figure from ancient Bihar, that being Mahavir or Mahavira, the last and most recent of the 24 Jain Trikantras. The Tattvatra Sutra, meaning on the nature, i.e. earth of reality, Tattva, is an ancient Jain text written by Acharya Urma Swami in Sanskrit sometime between the 2nd and 5th century in the Common Era. It is a philosophical text and its importance in Jainism is comparable with that of the Brahma Sutras and the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali in Hinduism. Its 10 chapters are 1. Faith and Knowledge 2. Category of the Living 3. The Lower World and the Middle World 4. Celestial Beings 5. Category of the Non-Living 6. Influence of Tagma 7. The Five Vows 8. Bondage of Karma 9. Stoppage and Shedding of Karma and 10. Liberation The theology in this sutra presents seven categories of truth. 1. Soul exists 2. Non-sentient matter exists 3. Karmic particles exist that inflow to each soul 4. Karmic particles bind to the soul. 5. Karmic particles inflow can be stopped. 6. Karmic particles can fall away from the soul. And 7. Complete release of karmic particles leads to liberation from worldly bondage, i.e. moksha. Other key pointers include Jain ontology being both realist and dualist. Jain philosophy accepts Three reliable means of knowledge. It holds that correct knowledge is based on perception, inference, and testament. Jain epistemology suggests that there are three related doctrines which deal with the complex and manifold nature of knowledge. One is the theory of many-sidedness. Two is the theory of conditioned prededication. And three is a theory of partial standpoints. 
Our world, according to Jane Cosmology, is a massive structure, wide at the bottom, narrow in the middle, and broad in its upper regions. It contains various realms of subworlds, including the world of the enlightened ones, the heavens, the various hells, and the human world at the center of the universe, which is a system of island continents. Jane Cosmology denies the existence of a supreme being responsible for creation and operating of the universe. In Jainism, this universe is an uncreated entity, existence since infinity and in nature, beginningless and endless, it has no creator, no governor, no judge, no destroyer. Jain philosophers constantly attacked the doctrine of creationism. Here's a quote from the Mahapurna, an ancient Jain text. Open quote. Some foolish men declare that the Creator made the world. The doctrine that the world was created is ill-advised and should be rejected. If God created the world, where was he before the creation? If you say he was transcendent and needed no support, where is he now? How could God have made this world without any raw material? If you say that he made it first, then he, the world, you are faced with an endless regression. End quote. Jainism does uphold the existence of heavenly and hellish beings who die and are reborn according to their karma. Gods are believed possess more than a transcendent knowledge about material things and can anticipate events in the human realms. However, once their past karmic merit is exhausted, gods die and are reborn again as humans, animals, or other beings. Souls are also believed to be able to achieve total perfection, a state commonly called Pratman and the Supreme Self. In Jainism, perfect souls with a body are called Andrit, i.e. victors, and perfect souls without a body are also called Sintas, i.e. liberated souls. According to Jainism, time is without beginning and eternal. The Kala Chakra, the, the cosmic wheel of time, rotates ceaselessly. Wheel of time is divided into two half cycles, ascending a time of progressively prosperity and happiness, and on the flip side, descending a time of increasing sorrow and immortality. Time, i.e. Kala, is what mediates changes. It causes what is now to become old, and so on and so forth. For Jains, time is that which supports the changes to which substances are subject. In Jainism, as in other Indian beliefs, it is karma which is responsible for the different forms of life that souls will take. Karma is envisioned, envisioned as a material substance or a subtle matter that can be bind to the soul, travel with the soul, inbound, form between rebirths and affect the suffering and happiness experienced by the jivas in the lokas. Jain philosophers hold that harmful actions cause the soul to be tainted and defiled with karmas. The final point I'd like to make about the Jains and possibly even the Vedic culture is a vow called the santra, a religious death ritual observed at the end of life. Historically by Jain monks and nuns, but it's rare today. It was not so rare then. This vial is a voluntary and gradual reduction of food and liquid, resulting in the dispassionate ending of life. 
So to summarize in this episode, we have set the scene in ancient Bihar. We looked at the Vedic teachings in the most limited way possible, because that's what you can do in a few minutes. We looked at Jain teachings also in the most limited way possible, because that's all you can do in a few minutes. And the geopolitical theater of the day, again, very quickly. Next episode, I want to look at the Buddha himself, his history, and Buddhist philosophy. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you.